Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're Solution Architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dive into topics of interest. Hello, my name's Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 72 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And joining myself today is Dr. Peter Stansky. Hello, old friend. Hello, old friend. And hello, new friends as well, joining us for the podcast. It's uh, it's so much fun being back on the show. And uh, I was reflecting in a little bit of uh, absence from uh, the digital airwaves, so to speak, that um, how much fun this show is to actually produce and uh, hang out with you, Shane, and, uh, you know, and hopefully share some cool insights with you guys tuning in. Totally. I don't know how much producing you do these days, Pete, but it's good to have you here nonetheless. Indeed, that's right. Yeah, the old days, I did, I did the I was a CEO, the Chief Everything Podcast Officer. Uh, now I've, I have you to help. How good is that? <laughs> yeah, great for you. Awesome. Is, is that outsourcing? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're doing a good job there. So how have you been, Pete? Pretty well, Shane. Very busy, as always, looking at a whole bunch of new things. Um, so customers, uh, new tech. Uh, we, in fact, we've got a whole swag of cool new stuff. Uh, you know, some new regions. Uh, yeah, super excited, in fact, because, um, you know, I, I get to hang out with you and uh, uh, share some of these uh, new announcements with the listeners today. Awesome. So, look, I've actually found some time to transition into a new role at Amazon. I've hung my hat up as a generalist and taking on a more focused specialist role. I'm not going to tell you what, but perhaps we will in the next themed episode. Absolutely. I think uh, you've got to have everyone waiting now and you're going to get lots of uh, IMs and emails saying, tell us more, Shane. <laughs> Tell us more. Look, so today in this episode of Tech Chat, we're going to run through a raft of updates that have occurred in the last two months, that being May through to the end of June 2020. Tons of updates, but not so much news. So today I'm going to make an executive decision. We're going to focus on the tech and we'll revisit the news in our next episode. Indeed. So Shane, now, there's some really cool stuff happening deep, deep, deep in networking. And I think I, I, I love networking as well as everything else up the stack. But uh, you got something to really, really cool to share about Direct Connect. Yeah, look, I want to start the show talking about resiliency. Now, resiliency can come in many shapes and forms, but I want to talk about hybrid network connectivity. Now, we suggest to customers that depending on your business requirements, that you should always have a triangulated network connectivity into AWS. And the gold standard here is multiple direct connect connections. So for those listeners who are not familiar with Direct Connect, it's our technology that enables you to essentially establish a resilient network uh, connection from your premises to AWS via a telco provider. Uh, so it's basically having a, a, a connection from wherever you are to wherever we are, uh, and it actually allows you to establish a very very close, high, low latency, private connection between um, your data center, wherever it may be, or your office or your co-location facility into AWS. And in many cases, this helps you to reduce your network costs, um, also increase your bandwidth throughput, uh, and provide a much more consistent network experience um, than connecting over the public internet. And in fact, believe it or not, if you do some cloud economics, and I'm a big fan of this, um, there's been a number of cases where customers actually were able to retire the public internet connections uh, and pay for a direct connect link and route all of their internet traffic via a a AWS Direct Connect and actually pay a lot less money for it, Shane. So super exciting. If you are comfortable um, doing that, uh, you can actually save a packet, depending which country though, having said that, uh, this depends on your uh, ISP's uh, costs for leased lines and dedicated connections. 
Yeah, I think depending on the country, and yeah, absolutely, AWS as your ISP, route all your traffic into a VPC out via a NAT gateway, away you go. Exactly. Now, when I was first introduced to AWS some many moons ago, I kept confusing Direct Connect with DirectX. I was, you know, playing a lot of games then, um, which couldn't be worlds apart. One dealing with networks and the other a framework for 3D graphics in Windows. I almost fell off my chair when you said that, Shane. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> worlds apart. Worlds <laughs> to apart. be honest, gaming these days, especially when it comes to uh, head-to-head games, uh, has a lot of dependency on network connectivity. Very much. You want that low latency. Um, get, get all your frags or whatever it is. So Direct Connect, simply put, allows you to connect an MPLS standard network into AWS. So MPLS being the multi-protocol label switching, which is a mechanism for routing traffic within a telecommunications network. And over this MPLS network, we leverage BGP or the Border Gateway Protocol as a standardized exterior gateway protocol to exchange routing and reachability information among autonomous systems on the internet. Bit of a mouthful there, but look, BGP and MPLS is effectively what keeps the internet up and running. And look, in many cases, you may not even know you are sitting on an MPLS network as well. So uh, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Um, but fundamentally, um, yeah, all, all it means is this is uh, the, the grown-up network that you want to use uh, when you've outgrown potentially slow or very small connections. Yeah. And look, Direct Connects can run from 1 gig all the way up to 40 gig using link aggregation protocols. So being able to pull multiple 10 gig links together. But for workloads that span AWS and on-premise environments, it could be business impacting if that link goes offline. And because of this, many organizations will run multiple direct connect connections using BGP to manage failovers. But the question is, Pete, how do you have confidence here that when the time comes, you know, think that planned or unplanned network outage, you know, that things are going to keep ticking along. You know, a lot of these things are really just hard to test. They really are. And to be honest, you know, uh, quite often those tests are done before the links are provisioned, um, hopefully tested quite thoroughly before they get handed over and used in production. Um, but um, if they are being used in production, quite often they never get tested or very rarely do they get tested. And in the reality is you really should take uh, the approach of everything fails all the time and do actually, you know, every now and again, you know, uh, cycle the uh, the configurations and check to make sure that everything still is operational. Um, pull a link, unplug a plug, uh, do some testing. Sounds like CICD in some ways. I think, you know, you're going to have a fair, if you, you go down that strategy, particularly on networks, like how confident would you be? Um, well, that's the thing. And I've, I've actually lived through scenarios where, you know, the network engineer absolutely assured me the link was configured in a high availability configuration. And then you pull the plug in and go, oops, I've just taken the entire business offline. And you don't want to be that guy, especially on a Friday night, <laughs> realizing that you're going to have a very long weekend ahead of you. Mm. So, Pete, I believe we have some news here. Would you like to tell our listeners? Yes, lots of cool news. So now Direct Connect uh, customers can use the resiliency toolkit to test the resiliency of your Direct Connect configurations and connections. So the failover testing feature enables customers to uh, test the resiliency by essentially unplugging. So in other words, disabling one or more of your border gateway protocol sessions, so your BGP sessions, using the AWS management console, the command line, as well as uh, using the AWS Direct Connect API. So prior to um, uh, doing this, so you could actually establish BGP sessions over physically resilient connections, but um, uh, 
being an AWS, we do not really provide any tools to introduce failure or test uh, of resiliency into your configuration. So you had to often do that yourself. But now with this new feature, you can actually shut down a BGP session across one of those links or multiple links uh, for a configurable period of time. And customers can always also cancel those tests anytime during the testing periods and return to your pre-test configuration. So what this really is all about is being able to turn things off test them to make sure because BGP allows for um, uh, advertisements and as, as it name entails, border gateway protocol, those networks at the border stop talking. So other paths will actually be taken. Fantastic. Now this is good as often in managed MPLS networks, this will involve your telco provider in order to do basically anything, you know, mm-hmm. just as you said before, Pete, this brings back a lot of memories for me working on weekends to arrange, you know, planned failover windows. This new feature makes this process of validating your connections, you know, to ensure that they're redundant just so much easier. You don't need to involve your telco provider anymore. In order to get started, you simply select your virtual interface, the BGP peering session, and how long you want to run the test. AWS will place the selected virtual interface BGP peering session in the down state. When the interface is in this state, traffic, in theory, should go over the redundant virtual interface. That's if everything is set up correctly. If if your configuration does not contain the appropriate redundant connections, the BGP peering session is going to fail and traffic will not get routed. When the test completes or you manually stop the test, AWS will restore the BGP session. After the test is complete, you can use a direct connect resiliency toolkit to adjust your configuration thereafter. Now, you may want to run this test on a once-off well, you may want to do this regularly, you know, once you've ironed out the bugs as part of your DR or BCP testing regime. Let's hope you have one here. Indeed. And look, the other cool thing about this is that there is also a history, uh, which includes all the different statuses and of the tests that you are actually running across all of your BGP peers. So the history includes things like which BGP peering session was tested, uh, its start and end time, as well as the actual test status, which uh, uh, you know can take a whole bunch of uh, different values. Now, this, this data is actually kept for a whole year, so 365 days. Um, and you can extract the test history from the console and via the CLI, which is uh, uh, super useful in, in case uh, you want to actually trace um, your test back to potentially things not working as expected. Yeah, or it could be for auditing purposes. Who knows? But, you know, it's a great mechanism there. And look, one last thing to mention is you also have an option to cancel a test at any time. You know, maybe something gets stuck in a, in a down state. This will stop the virtual interface failover test in progress and reinstantiate it back on the previous BGP sessions. That's super cool, Shane. But, you know, it's also worth calling out, and we don't often um, uh, talk about this unless customers ask us, but uh, when you configure your direct connect, you know, it's also very important to make sure you think about um, which of the direct connect peering points you perhaps connect to and via. You know, you don't want to potentially have all of your links going to one direct connect um, uh, point of presence uh, because that in, in itself could potentially be considered a, a point of failure, right? Um, in, in, in most countries, we have lots and lots of uh, direct connect points of um, uh, that you can connect via and through, uh, and that actually helps to maintain a diversity of paths that you actually have. Um, to uh, into AWS, so it's uh, well well worth calling out. And also, you know, if you if you do want to be super pedantic, you can also make sure by talking to us that uh, you know you are plugged into different bits of equipment uh, inside the peering points as well. Because sometimes um, if you if you hand this off to telcos or third parties that actually are helping you, uh, they may not actually think about those uh, items as well. So don't not not the same switch or the same equipment, uh, not the same direct peering point. Uh, go as wide and diverse as you possibly can, and uh, yeah. you know your users will will thank you for it. 
Couldn't have said it any better, Pete. Yeah, it's all about diversity, you know, separate fiber paths. You know, as you just mentioned, we've got multiple direct connect peering locations. Absolutely. Now, speaking of being proactive, here's another one. Shield advanced users, don't call us, we'll call you. Exactly. That's, that's, a, that's a great little tagline. We should um, we should put that at the, at the bottom of the service, perhaps. So, yes, so AWS Shield Advance now allows for proactive engagement from the DDoS or the uh, response team or DRT, as we call them, uh, when you actually experience a DDoS event that has been d- triggered uh, for your settings. So to level set, Shield is a managed distributed denial of service protection service that safeguards applications running on AWS. It uh, gives you... Um, uh, always on detection, uh, automatic um, inline mitigations that minimize application downtime and its latency. Uh, so there is actually um, no need to engage AWS support generally uh, to benefit from the DDoS protection service. Now, uh, there are two tiers of AWS Shield, so that is standard and advanced. In this update, uh, we're going to focus purely um, on our Shield advanced users. But if you aren't aware of all the AWS custom benefits from the automatic protection of AWS Shield standard, uh, it's actually available at no additional charge. So AWS Shield standard uh, defends against most common, really frequently occurring network and transparent uh, layered DDoS attacks that target your website or your application. I often talk about it as the uh, internet uh, background radiation. There is a lot of noise, a lot of packets floating on the web uh, and the networks, and you don't want to be the recipient of any of those. This is where we come in. So when you use that Shield standard uh, with Amazon CloudFront and Amazon Route 53, you receive comprehensive availability protection against all known infrastructure layer three and level four attacks, Shane. So uh, it's actually a great combination of those services coming together to give you a lot of telemetry about how your systems are actually performing and uh, if they are actually seeing any potential uh, DDoS attacks. That's right, Pete. So that was Shield, but Shield Advanced is our offering that provides a higher level of protection. So primarily speaking, it defends against attacks targeting your applications running on EC2, ELBs, CloudFront, Global Accelerator, and Route 53 resources. And one of the many features of Shield Advanced, and we don't have time to go into all of them, is having access to the DDoS response team or the DRT. So you can engage a DDoS response team if your application is unhealthy or is a result of a possible DDoS attack. So once authorized, so you can authorize them because not all customers want this, uh, you know, once you authorize the DDoS response team, and not all customers may want the DDoS response team to have access to your WAF configuration, VPC flow logs, and so on. You know, But once you authorize them, and with this update, this will allow them to quickly triage and resolve attacks when you escalate a possible DDoS attack through AWS support. The change here with Shield Advanced is now allows proactive engagement from a DDoS response team when a DDoS event is detected. So when you turn on proactive engagement, the DDoS response team will directly contact you if a Route 53 health check associated with your protected resources becomes unhealthy during an event that's detected by Shield Advanced. So rather than contacting us, we will contact you. Now, this allows you to engage with experts more quickly when the availability of your application might be affected by a suspected attack. You can receive proactive engagements for network layer and transport layer events on Elastic IP addresses and global accelerators and for web request floods on CloudFront distributions and application load balancers. To use proactive engagement, 
first configure Shield Advanced health-based detection for a resource that you want the DDoS response team to monitor. You can then enable proactive engagement in the Shield console and specify up to 10 different contacts for the uh, DRT team to contact you during a detected event um, that correlates with you know, unhealthy states of your resources that are being protected. Now, you must subscribe to the business support plan or the enterprise support plan to use proactive engagements. Now, proactive engagements... Um, are available in all AWS regions where Shield Advance is available and can be uh, enabled at no additional costs, which is great. Uh, and for more information on um, proactive engagements or Shield Advanced health-based detection, go check out the Shield Advanced Developer Guide, which I highly recommend you guys have a read through because it actually demystifies a lot of these questions that may actually pop up um, as you just go ahead and uh, start setting it up. Cool. All right. So here's an update, Pete, moving on, mm. that I was thrilled to see as early in this year, I was in a state with a customer and dealing with, I guess you could say, an anti-pattern of Redshift, you know, in using it as an OLTP style database, yet the workload, yet, you know, Redshift itself is more OLAP based. So Shane, can you demystify it for, for our listeners? Because not even maybe a database guru and au uh, fait with all these acronyms. Okay. So look, OLTP, you know, Simply put, is for short, sharp, small queries. Um, you know, like could be like an online shopping website, etc. Whereas OLAP-based workloads are for more, you know, long-running. You know, having to deal with record sets that span maybe you know millions of rows and being able to, you know, big, long, complex queries that may take minutes to return. Now you know how. How's that this? sound? Pretty good. You know how yeah. when I was at uni, I was learning this stuff uh, many, many moon ago. Now, uh, look for the uh, the difference in the two acronyms: the T versus the A. Uh, so OLTP online transaction processing and uh, uh, online al analytic processing. Yeah. So think of it ah. as analytics related things and transactions. And uh, generally, e-commerce things generally relate to uh, transactions, and analytics re revolves around data analytics. So uh, if you're doing those two different workloads, ones are short and bursty, like you said, versus others are long running and perhaps more heavy duty on IO. Yeah. So look, the kicker here was this customer was using Redshift for OLTP style workloads. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, like obviously it's designed for OLAP, but, the, you know, given the volume of records in these Redshift tables, Redshift was still better performing option over a standard relational database. Nice. Now, Postgres in this case, given that Redshift is Postgres um, SQL compliant. But when you write a query to execute against any database engine, the first thing that needs to occur is to compile the query and create a query plan. Now, every database engine is going to do this differently. But since, you know, SQL is a declarative language, there are typically many, many alternative ways to execute a given query with, you know, wide varying levels of performance. So when a query is submitted to the database, the query optimizer evaluates some of the different, um, you know, paths, to execute that query and then decides what the best option is. Now, given Redshift is distributed database engine, in this customer's case, the Postgres would be really fast in terms of you know query compilation, but overall slower in dealing with their really large tables. You know, they needed the fast query compilation that Postgres provided, but that the actual performance that Redshift you know in dealing with you know really large tables. So there was no silver bullet here. So Redshift can be a bit slow to get going, but it was never designed for OLTP. And, you know, as I mentioned before, the use case I described is an anti-pattern. Whilst that picture you've been in isn't ideal for Redshift, uh, it can process queries twice as fast, especially when it actually compiles the queries. So what this means is that um, 
You get a performance hit the first time a query is executed, but any subsequent query plans actually uh, are stored in the actual engine cache. Now, this improves and gives you a better quality of throughput and performance uh, when you create a brand new uh, uh, Redshift cluster, uh, perhaps when you onboard a new uh, workload to the existing cluster, or often perhaps when you do a software upgrade for the cluster. So with this update, the query optimizations are now scaled into a serverless compilation service beyond the compute resource of the lead node, which actually makes up um, the actual cluster itself. So Redshift in this case. So we're releasing an unlimited cache now, by the way, by the way so that you can actually use these compiled objects to increase the actual uh, cache hits. So essentially, uh, when queries are sent to Redshift now, uh, the query execution engine compiles a query into a machine code, right? Machine code, uh, and across a distributed cluster of nodes. And this compiled code executes faster because it also eliminates the overhead of using an interpreter. And quite often, uh, a lot of these queries actually are interpreted. So this is actually at the machine level. So for new clusters, um, which have actually have got no new code caches, or after you've basically spun up a cluster, uh, or done an upgrade uh, of some sort, um, the cache is actually flushed. So the queries must undergo another query compilation. So just be aware of that. Um, and also, as these results uh, are being created, the latency of the queries will vary a little bit, uh, which may mean that uh, the queries uh, for some of our workers will become a little bit uh, less predictable, but over time, they will actually stabilize. So with this update, the uh, unlimited cache minimizes the need uh, to compile code. Uh, and when a compilation is needed, a scalable uh, compilation from the farm compiles it in parallel across uh, multiple nodes to speed up your workload. So the magnitude of the workload speed up really does depend on its complexity and concurrency. Uh, but again, to learn more about uh, code compilation, compilation, go check out the query processing. Uh, that's actually uh, under the database developer guide uh, for Redshift. Now, these query performance improvements are now automatically enabled for you with release number 1.0.13751, Shane. So uh, go check it out and uh, go time your queries to see how much better the throughput happens to be. Uh, but again, do it on the second query <laughs> to make sure you are doing a test on a pre-warmed infrastructure. I would love to, yeah, spend some time and test that, but I don't have time. Yeah, but listen, so real, real story. Um, so the reason I said the, uh, the pre-warmed environment, I, I had a, a couple of customers over the years where they were actually spinning up infrastructure and then doing a load test and then shutting it down. Um, and they were wondering why the results were so, uh, so latent. Uh, across multiple different things. And then, uh, you know, um, they were trying to contain cost. And I said, look, you know, uh, run the machine for a bit longer, run multiple queries, get the state into a steady state. You know, it's just like booting up your PC. It always takes longer the first time it starts before all the systems, all the memory allocations are in place and all the caches have been pre-warmed. That's the best way to really do any kind of load test. So if you believe there's a, a cold boot somewhere in your architecture or for a subsystem, uh, expect that it will probably perform the worst, which and that and that delay or latency may, then, may uh, actually propagate to other systems as well. So again, uh, look at the whole architecture, pre-warm everything before you do your volumetric tests. Perfect. I was thinking of the days when you're talking about you know your PC booting up, things taking longer. Thinking absolutely with mechanical hard drives, it was really uh, you know mm -hmm. noticeable. Not so much these days in the world of NVMe, you know, over a PCI Express bus. But yeah, totally, Pete. Yeah, those head sticks have a lot to answer for, right? <laughs> On the planet. Better, better run it better run a defrag. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay, let's move on. So a quick update here. On Parameter Store. Now, we covered Parameter Store and Secrets Manager in a past episode. See episode 41 
But if you're not aware, Systems Manager Parameter Store provides secure hierarchical storage for configuration data management and secrets. So you can store things such as passwords, database strings, and AMI IDs, license codes as parameter values. And you can store your values as plain text or as a secure encrypted string. You can reference Systems Manager parameters in your scripts, you know, commands, SSM documents, and so on. And typically, you know, you really want to leverage this for automation of your workflows. You know, you don't want tight coupling. You want to be able to just grab things out, you know, with parameters. Now, we spoke in the past about querying parameter store for the latest AMI ID that we publish. But Pete, we've added in a new feature here in that's actually quite similar to the uh, AMI IDs that we publish. So you can call the AWS service to actually extract things like the region, the endpoint, the availability zone, all the public parameters by using the following path, like AWS-service-global-infrastructure. So by actually uh, using that uh, as a path for the get parameter by path uh, uh, SSM CLI call, you can also extract all these parameters via query. And it'll return things like uh, all of the regions that are actually out there or perhaps availability zones. So um, this can be refined even more so that you can really figure out what you're looking for uh, to allow yourself to perhaps uh, do some tweaking in the queries uh, to be able to then use the result and the values as part of cloud formation or CI/CD pipelines, uh, or just you know figuring out how the configuration, you know, the number of AZs perhaps you know in a particular region that you're trying to deploy something ahead of deployment. Yeah, look again, this is just another way you can tweak your scripts and processes, make them more dynamic, less static. You know, it can ask the question and validate if a region has three AZs or if a particular region has a given service. This is going to remove static mapping and allow you to dynamically ask those questions. Which is what cloud's meant to be all about, right? Don't don't just hard code anything. Uh, the whole idea of uh, things being dynamic. You know, think of it this way: what if what if one day the region that you're in adds another availability zone? Um, how would you know that? Uh, you know. So be clever, be smart, uh, use the uh, actual uh, service to be able to actually extract a whole bunch of really cool, useful things, as well as you know, use them for your own uh, string uh, repositories for any special secrets or any special um, you know, paths or configurations, versions, uh, feature, feature flags for your application as well are great uses for this uh, to figure out what should be turned on or turned off. Yeah, look, we add regions and availability zones from time to time. So look, you could probably have a query that runs maybe daily that queries, you know, these uh, queries this via parameter store and, you know, tries to figure out the delta. You know, like it's just another lever here, Pete, that will help hopefully, you be, you know, build a more dynamic application. That could be cool. You just gave me an idea. You could just uh, write a script that sits there. Uh, some kind of a serverless thing that says, hey, tell me, you know, when has AWS added a new AZ perhaps or another uh, availability, uh, another region perhaps. So that could be fun. And you could be the first to tweet about it. There you go. It wouldn't actually be that hard. You know, you could just leverage that (laughs) and parse the output. Go code. Okay. RPOs and RTOs are acronyms that are common terms amongst many DR or BCP plans. So in case you're not aware of what an RTO and RPO is, they are recovery point objectives. So being the amount of data that you're willing to lose, whereas the RTO or recovery time objective is how long you must return service irrespective of data loss. And it's also worth calling out DR and BCP, Shane, too, because uh, you know there's a lot of acronyms flying around. And DR is really about disaster recovery and business continuity planning, or BCP, uh, could actually entail when your systems go completely go offline 
And uh, you know, does your business have a BCP for maybe using pen and paper uh, to doing something when uh, that IT system or that critical bit of infrastructure does not actually behave as expected? Um, so yeah, well worth calling out. Uh, RPOs, RTOs in the context of DR and BCP. Cool. So Aurora has an update that may go that extra steps of fulfilling those RPOs for your applications, or in some cases may allow you to use the service because depending on your organization, you may have gates in place allowing you to only use services with an RTO or RPO you can manage. Indeed. So Aurora with uh, Postgres SQL compatibility has added support for managing the recovery point objectives of the RPO in Aurora Postgres SQL global database configurations. So the global database is a database configuration that allows you to create up to five st- secondary clusters, each in a different AWS region, separate from the primary clusters region. So they're therefore going really wide and really broad. And these clusters um, maintained using storage-based replication with very low recovery point objectives, RPOs. And essentially, this means that uh, this lowers the recovery time objective for you. So with managed RPO, you can ensure that the global databases, well, database, spread across multiple locations, will automatically stay within a desired window of data recovery. So in this case, Aurora Global Database maintains basically a, a, a typical replication latency of less than one second with an upper bound of five seconds. Now, this ultra-low latency uh, grants global, uh, essentially, readout, uh, scale-out for online transaction processing workloads, as we talked about earlier. Uh, and also, the managed RPO monitors the replication lag to ensure that at least one of the secondary clusters stays within the target RPO window. So as you have different internet traffic and latency across the globe, we want to make sure that there is actually consistency in at least um, one of the secondary clusters, but essentially. Uh, so now with this update, um, all the secondary clusters fall behind the target RPO. So transactions will pause in the primary cluster until at least one of the secondary clusters is able to catch up. Now you can configure manage RPO with the uh, recently launched Aurora Postgres SQL 11.7 chain. That's awesome. Now it's mm. a great update here. And it's obviously, it's all about data integrity. So to our listeners here, you know, I've got a lot of questions. You know, what if transactions gets paused on your primary cluster? How are you going to handle failure? You know, are you dealing with this gracefully? Are you caching? You know, what's your strategy here? And more so, if replication latency is something that is very important to you, and it should be, how are you monitoring this? You know, CloudWatch perhaps, Pete. Indeed. Look, it's, it's really important to make sure that you have a really good appreciation um, of the latency. So, for example, you know, chatty, chatty applications to a database if they're doing reads, that's generally fine. Um, but if you have writes and those writes require transactions and you want to make sure those things are propagated and you want to make sure that you, you ensure you maintain your, uh, your RPOs and RTOs, it's really, really important uh, to make sure that you are very intimate and uh, you best friends with the actual uh, DBA in your organization uh, and the architects you know work hand in hand to figure out what is the most optimum configuration and what are the tolerances that your systems can actually and want to cope with. Cool. Okay, I think we have uh, geeked out a bit here on databases, Pete. Now, we've spoken in the past about SFTP for S3, but I have to ask you, do you know when it bulked up and I mean like added more protocols and morphed into its own product lines? Because this is something I just missed. You know, to be honest, Shane, a really great question. I think somewhere around April, uh, I wasn't really paying attention. There have been so many announcements. Look, it's caught me off guard as well. And I have to admit, I had to do a bit of research here. So look, the AWS transfer family of services, in case you missed it, um, also 
provides a fully managed support for file transfers directly in and out of S3. So we spoke about SFTP in the past, but now it's added in support for file transfer protocol over SSL, so FTPS and native FTP. So the latter protocol, you'd be surprised how many organizations still run with FTP alone. Truckloads, truckloads, yeah. Yeah, totally. So look, if you're not aware, check it out. It's based on S3 and being it's an S3, you know, you can have it event-based, you know, maybe trigger a Lambda function when a file gets uploaded, no service to managers, pick the protocols, again, you know, FTP, FTPS, SFTP, and pay by the hour. Oh, indeed. So Shane, what are the costs associated with this when you, when you talk about pay by the hour? So it is 30.3 cents per hour, and that is of June 2020 per protocol you enable, and roughly speaking, 4 cents per gig of traffic going in and out of the service, depending on your region. That's not a bad price to pay for them that you don't really have to manage anymore, right? It's uh, a lot better than uh, trying to run a big, beefy server to uh, ensure you've got that FTP service always up and available. Very true. Okay, so uh, so this is a refresher. We did launch a, a new feature for the AWS uh, transfer family, uh, and we're adding support for using uh, end users' source IP addresses here as a factor for authentication, which is really cool, which uh, basically enables you to apply an additional layer of security when authorizing access over secure file transfer protocols, FTP, over FTP, as well as... Um, uh, FTP in general, Shane. So uh, we uh, have another layer of security to make sure that uh, when your files are being transferred, uh, they are actually coming to, from and to the person that should be uh, uh, transferring that data. Now, this is a staple for FTP servers today, like FTPD, FileZilla, and so on, and is often a requirement for many users. So, you know, it's great that we've just added in this feature. Yeah, absolutely. And when delivering protocols, um, you definitely want to make sure that uh, you know you send your credentials. Uh, and often these protocols have sent them in plain text in the past as well. So uh, having this layer of security is uh, is even better. Pete, have you ever tried debugging, um, say something like S3 and granting permissions like S3 star, or even taking it further back, you know, NTFS full control to everyone or Schmod seven seven seven. Uh, all too often, Shane, and I'll be really honest, it's uh, not a lot of fun, especially when you've got a, a large number of files, um, folders, um, directory structures can get really, really messed up. And uh, I'm a big fan of uh, of actually using group permissions. <laughs> they are a nice little friend. Uh, and uh, to be honest, uh, uh, even though I live both on uh, yeah, the Unix and uh, in, in, uh, uh, Linux file systems, uh, I've also spent a lot of time on NTFS and uh, Active Directory has been my friend there. Look, I'm sure our listeners can relate here. And look, if we're all being honest, as administrators, you may end up granting permissions to either entities, so users or roles, beyond what they require. I'm guilty of this. Sometimes I just need to get what I'm working on done, you know, and then go back and tighten up. IAM has just had an update. Whilst it has provided last access information for some time to help you identify unused permissions so you can remove them, it hasn't touched S3. But now we bring these features to S3 as of April 12. So you can now understand um, if you have overly gracious S3 permissions that you are not using and you can move towards the practice of least privilege. Now to refresh with services, the tracking period for services is the last 400 days or less if your region has begun supporting this feature within the last year. Now the tracking period for Amazon S3 actions began on April 12 of 2020. So look, if you need to have a good understanding of permissions being used versus what's granted of S3, take a look from April 12, 2020 there on. 
Awesome. And look, this is a really important thing because, uh, you know, quite often as an admin or someone in haste, you, uh, you know, relax the security access to a file or a resource. Um, and then you get busy, the phone rings, you get distracted, you don't go back and change permissions. So, uh, yeah, being able to uh, see many of these things, um, uh, super important to make sure that you are providing the you know, least privileged access for your users and make sure that you have a very happy, uneventful uh, you know, life and uh, you have no bad days in particular resulting from security breaches. Cool. We all want, no one wants data exfiltration or those bad days, as you mentioned, Pete. Mm, indeed. So we talk about new services. So when new services uh, get released, they are often released as uh, MVPs or minimum viable product or we also call them by the way minimum lovable products as well uh, so it's a bare set of features uh, we iterate and iterate really fast um, many many times over uh, and add additional features on the back of customer feedback um, and we've not had um, much in the case of msk which is the amazon um, managed service for kafka uh, so there are now upgrades available for you for clusters if you actually run them so now you can take advantage of the uh, Apache Kafka, uh, Kafka features and bug fixes by upgrading to the latest version of Apache Kafka deployed uh, on new or perhaps existing Amazon managed streaming for Apache Kafka. So this is the MKS service clusters. So Amazon MKS uses rolling updates, which is a best, essentially a best practice for maintaining high availability and supportability within clusters to ensure that you, have you continue to have IO throughput as uh, versions are actually being upgraded. Uh, so you can actually upgrade an existing NKS cluster to a new version of Apache Kafka and you can uh, update it, to, but, you, but you can't actually go backwards, right? So you can't actually um, downgrade to an older version chain. Excellent. I think you've been saying MKS there, MSKP. <laughs> I have. Oh my gosh, my mental blank. There you go, guys. This show is live. Well, live recorded. <laughs> I've been just oh, and I don't even know about it. How's that? <laughs> okay. So look, as you just said, we're calling out, you know, not being able to upgrade to an older version or is that downgrade, whatever it is? Yeah, you, you can't upgrade to an older version. <laughs> How does that sound? <laughs> well, you can't downgrade either. Okay, so look, when you update the Kafka version of an MSK cluster, also check your client-side software to make sure its version enables you to use the features of the cluster's new Apache Kafka version. MSK only updates the server software, so it's not going to update your clients here. Yeah, so be very careful with that. Now, to update your Kafka, and you can do it in a CLI or the console, as one would expect. Uh, so in the um, AWS Management Console, open the Amazon MSK, right? Oh, I think I got it right. Uh, and then choose the MSK cluster on which you want to do the update for, for the next Kafka version. Uh, and on the actual Details tab, choose Upgrade the Apache Kafka version. And through the CLI, you use the AWS Kafka Get Compatible Kafka Versions dash cluster ARN ID which will then actually output the, um, a list of Apache Kafka versions, which you can actually um, update the cluster with. Um, so you'll get multiple versions in there, depending on which version you're actually sitting on, uh, and you can go ahead and make those changes. Yeah, cool. And in order to do this without impacting your clients, use the following recommendations so that your MSK cluster can be highly available during an update or when MSK is actually replacing a broker. So you want to ensure that the replication factor is at least two for 2AZ clusters and three for 3AZ clusters. And RF, a replication factor of one, can lead to offline partitions during a rolling update. Secondly, set the minimum in-sync replicas to at most RF minus one. So a mini ISR, so minimum in-sync replicas, that is equal to the RF 
that's a replication factor, can prevent producing to the cluster during a rolling update. A mini ISR of two allows three-ray replicator topics to be available when one replica is offline. And lastly, ensure client connection strings include multiple brokers. You know, a bit obvious here, but definitely worth calling out. Having multiple brokers in a client's connection string allows for failover when a specific broker is offline for an update. Yeah, it's a very long way of saying that you don't want to rip in the fabric of the cluster, <laughs> right? So make sure you've got enough nodes in the cluster to make sure it continues operating um, as you go through the actual updates. Yeah. Pete, we have some EC2 updates. Shall we uh, briefly touch on those? Yeah, go for it, Shane. Yeah, let it rip. We've got, a, we've got a whole bunch, especially around the okay, EC2 cool. world. Yeah, look, we're, so we've announced the general availability of the G4DN bare metal instances. So those are our GPU instances that have been out for a while now with up to eight NVIDIA T4 GPUs, but they're now available as bare metal instances. So we now have our new EC2 C5A instances featuring our second generation of AMD Epic processors. Again, check them out, take a look. And moving on, we have a raft of 100 gig instances, 100 gig networking base instances are now available in additional regions. So that's a C5N, M5N, M5DN, R5N, and R5DN. So the N you know, suffix indicating that they are 100 gigabit. Now, the ones that I'm really, really excited about is our C6G, R6G instances, which are powered by our own Graviton 2 processors, are now generally available. So please, check them out. So these are our ARM-based instances that were announced at reInvent in 2019. In fact, we were talking about ARM CPUs before we started to record the show, Shane, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of value in, you know, um, uh, the ARM-based architecture because, you know, you can have lots of cores at a very low power wattage ratios um, and get a lot of bang for your buck, right? And uh, there's some interesting announcements uh, made by other organizations. Yes, yes. Other organizations are exiting off the uh, x86 bandwagon into their own custom silicon based on ARM as well. Which is a lot about so, uh, the future of many of our laptops. <laughs> well, Which we I like. think so. What, look, what I actually wonder with that announcement is what will it mean to the rest of x86? Will other manufacturers, you know, start going down this path? Uh, you know, will Windows on ARM be mainstream soon like will, will things just be ported over well uh, i don't know the answers to this but i wouldn't be surprised yeah look i mean windows already runs on a whole raft of different things right like the, the raspberry pi and i think one of the surface devices uh, supports uh, uh runs on on um uh, one of the arm the snapdragon from memory i can't remember what the actual yeah. cpu was so yeah it's, it's becoming quite popular by the way and uh it really does come down to battery conservation uh power efficiency uh and still being able to uh have multiple cores which does you know help the uh, the os and the the users feel like they've got a pretty snappy and responsive uh system that they're actually playing with as opposed to uh you know the sluggy you know i can type faster than the computer can display my my keystrokes yeah, I think it's one thing to have amazing, you know, hardware here, but I think it's the ecosystem as well. I don't know where, you know, getting off track here a little bit. This is a show about AWS. But, you know, if you look back at like, say, Windows RT or Windows Phone, you know, quite amazing in their own ways, but not having, you know, applications that were ported across 
was the nail in the coffin for these platforms. Look, I think, you know, with this recent announcement made by Apple, you know, moving off x86 to their own custom silicon based on ARM, I think that's probably going to have enough, you know, weight in the industry to start seeing applications ported over to ARM. And, you know, how that will affect PCs and servers, etc. who knows? Yeah, well, all I'll say is compiler, compiler, compiler to your best friend because uh, just with a couple of switches on the CLI and the command line, you can make those things spit out almost any um, any um, you know native machine language that you need, including that for uh, field programmable gate arrays as well. So you know you can do some really clever stuff, you know, at, at a number of different layers, and uh, you, you're still relatively shielded uh, from the actual uh, you know uh, underlying CPU architecture. So I think we're mm. it would be a good shame. I have a good feeling about this one. Shall we move on, Pete? We shall. Look, we've mentioned Windows and things like that. So FSX for Windows, which is the um, Windows file server, provides fully, it's actually a fully fully managed service by us. It's highly flexible for file storage and uh, uh, it allows actually the, the communication of the SMB protocol, which is a server message block used pretty much by all Windows devices. Uh, so it's actually built on, um, so the service is built on Windows Server, uh, delivering a wide range of admin features such as you know, quotas and user file restores, uh, Active Directory integration, as we spoke about security earlier. Uh, it's consistent with the operating system uh, just like you would experience it on premises on your Windows file server. Now, what the uh, additions are for um, Amazon FSX for Windows is uh, the additional for storage capacity scaling as well as throughput capacity scaling. So to tackle that one first, so storage capacity scaling generally um, is required when you, when you start running out of space. So it allows you to increase your file system size uh, as your data set increases and um, also allows you to increase the throughput capacity uh, for bi-directional data transfers, letting you adjust the throughput up and down dynamically to help with uh, fine-tuning of performance and also reducing costs. So you need to be aware that obviously when you start to scale scale um, file system up, uh, you generally can't really easily come back down. So be aware of that. Uh, so it's a very important thing that uh, you, you can start using the service to actually add extra capacity. So what this really means is that uh, the storage capacity is used uh, on SSDs, uh, and this can be specified between 32 gig all the way up to 65,536 gigs uh, of storage. Um, and of course, um, the capacity of the hard drives can be specified between 2,000 gigabytes and 65,000 536 gigs. So it's a lot of storage capacity you can actually get to use. Now, important points to be aware of uh, when increasing storage capacity is that, um, you know, you can only do an increase up, right? as I said earlier, you, are, you can increase the amount of storage capacity for the file system, but you cannot actually decrease the storage capacity. Uh, think about the minimum capacity increase is 10% uh, uh, of the file system's current storage capacity, all the way up to that 65,536 gigabytes uh, magic number. Uh, also, the minimum throughput capacity, be very mindful of that because uh, you want to make sure you've got enough capacity to allow uh, the file system to be able to transfer um, between the file system. So you want at least 16 megabytes per second throughput um, because this is the storage um, optimization step that's required as you actually uh, go and rebuild the file system. And finally, um, the time between increases. So if you want to add more capacity really quickly, uh, think twice because uh, you can't make future capacity increases on the file system until six hours after the last increase was requested or perhaps un, uh, until the storage optimization process has f uh, been fully upgraded and completed, whichever is the longest period of time. So be mindful. So if you do increase that capacity, um, make sure you think about some capacity planning to make sure you get a little bit more than six hours worth of, uh, of storage consumption. 
some good points to know there, Pete. Now, these are some great features here. Now, I love the ability here to be able to dynamically alter the throughput capacity of the volume. You know, you could dynamically adjust this for maybe cyclical workloads or, you know, one-time bursts to achieve, you know, those time-sensitive goals or maybe even, you know, to be more cost-conscious here. You know, maybe you don't need the performance at night. You know, just saying, Pete, you know, this is something that, I'd probably, uh, you know, end up doing perhaps even script this via PowerShell. Who knows? Okay, Pete, I think that's it for today. We've covered a lot of updates. We're almost at the end of the hour. Who knows what it will be like in editing? Um, we've hopefully we've caught up with most things that have transpired in the world of AWS Cloud. So just to recap to sh the show today, there is now an ability to provide direct connect testing. You can use the resiliency toolkit to test the resiliency of your direct connect connections which is pretty cool because you can cut your telco out of your conversation and do it yourself. Now, we've also talked about Shield Advance now allows proactive engagement from the uh, uh, DDoS response team. Uh, so whenever we see uh, a DDoS take place where your resources are being impacted, we will call you. You don't call us. And as long as you give us your 10 points of contact, uh, we will make our way through those to make sure that we can actually let you know what is going on. We've also talked about uh, Redshift now delivers better cold query performance because it provides uh, query compilations, talked about um, Aurora, PostgreSQL, global database um, cluster distributions to make sure that you have a, a consistent um, RPO and also RTO, if that's what you're looking for to maintain with your business. Uh, we also dove into um, tightening S3 permissions for your IAM users and uh, roles, especially when using S3, Shane. Yeah, and look, Parameter Store now has the ability for you to query available regions, endpoints, and service availability. MSK now supports version upgrades of Apache Kafka. We spoke about the AWS transfer family and you cannot use... Oh, we spoke about the AWS transfer family and the ability to use a source IP for authentication. There was a raft of EC2 updates. And finally, we touched on FSx for Windows now enables you to grow storage and scale performance of your file systems dynamically. Lots of updates. And I think we're done, Pete. Well, yeah, it's been fun, Shane. So, guys, thanks for tuning in. You know, as always, um, we try to demystify some of the features and releases and hope to make them more digestible. So tune in next time and uh, hear what we have to say. Yeah, and look, thank you for the feedback. I feel there's been quite a bit lately and I've maybe been a little bit slow to getting back. But please keep the feedback coming. Drop us an email at awstechchat at amazon.com as your messages do drive the direction of the show. Join us again next time on a deep dive episode, perhaps on what my new role is. But until next time, bye for now. I think you're going to say off your own choosing. So let us know what you want. Bye for now. Ciao. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.